This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. It may be years before the costs, both human and economic, of the devastating earthquake and tsunami on March 11th in Japan are fully known, but they will be enormous. With thousands feared dead throughout the northeastern part of the country and officials scrambling to contain a nuclear disaster, there are now more questions than answers. In this special package of interviews, Wharton experts explore where Japan, and indeed the world, goes from here. First, finance professor Franklin Allen offers his thoughts on the key factors that could affect Japan's business and economic recovery. Next, Howard Kunruther, professor of decision sciences in business and public policy, is joined by Erwan Michel Kajan, managing director of Wharton's Risk Management and Decision Processes Center, to size up the lessons risk managers and other corporate executives need to take away from the earthquake and its aftermath. And finally, Jean Lemaire, professor of insurance and actuarial science, discusses what he sees as the disaster's global impact on the insurance industry and its ability to protect policyholders when future disasters strike. Before we start talking about the events of, of the last week or so, uh, the earthquake and tsunami, I wonder if you could give us a quick rundown on what is the state of Japan, especially its economy, uh, prior to these events. They've had their ups and downs. Where have they been? So I think it was not in a good state to start with. The economic situation hasn't been good for a long time. They have many problems in that dimension. They have very large debt. People often talk about the 200% gross debt. That's a little misleading. What's important, more important perhaps, is the net debt. If you offset the assets the government has against the debt, it's more like 100 to 120% of GDP. Of GDP. And that is a serious number. It's not quite as serious as the 200, but it, it's the same order of magnitude as Italy. And so that is a big burden for them. At the moment, it doesn't matter too much because interest rates are so low. But if interest rates go up in Japan, this is going to be a, a big problem. The second problem they have is demography. They're getting older, and with this large debt out there, that potentially is a problem as to how they're going to support that. And then the third problem is lack of competitiveness. What we've seen is South Korean companies have increasingly taken over in many areas. So Samsung, for example, has grown tremendously and has taken many markets from the Japanese companies that for many years dominated. So uh, Panasonic, Sony, and so on, have not been competing as effectively as they did 10 to 20 years ago. Even among cars, uh, Hyundai, Kia, these companies are taking market share and doing very well. Obviously, Toyota's had problems in the last uh, couple of years, and so Japan's economy hasn't been doing well from a competitive standpoint. And then fourth, the government has been not doing a good job. They haven't provided leadership. We've had many prime ministers. They don't seem to be able to come to a decision about how to proceed, not only on the economy, but in many other directions. Now, I don't know how closely you've been able to, to study the sort of impact area of, of these events, but uh, from what we read, I mean, it, it's, it's not the 
if there's a heartland, it says this isn't really the heartland of uh, manufacturing, those sorts of things. Is there, is there any way of describing the, the areas that are most affected by uh, the earthquake and tsunami, how important they are to Japan? So I've been to Sendai twice. It's a very beautiful, or it was a very beautiful city. I'm sure it will be again. It isn't a manufacturing heartland. It's not like this hit in Osaka or Nagoya or, or the whole central part from, from Tokyo down to Osaka. So in that sense, it isn't the big one. It, it didn't take out the economy in the way that a massive earthquake like this would do in that area. But having said that, obviously the damage is very severe. We, we've seen the dramatic photos of the tsunami going across the landscape and so on. And clearly there is a lot of damage there. I don't think we have a good sense of how big that damage is yet. You hear people say 20 billion, you say people say 100 billion. My own guess is that in the end it's going to be substantially higher than that. I think the other big area is obviously these nuclear power stations. It seems most unfortunate that they didn't realize that a tsunami could take out these diesel generators and hadn't prepared for that. And they now face this terrible situation with potential meltdowns and, and drastic situations. Hopefully they will get that under control. But if the worst were to happen there, then that would be a great deal more damage and uh, would be a very serious event in many dimensions, not least, of course, loss of, loss of life. Now, is the government and the insurance companies, are they in a position to handle the losses that, and the rebuilding costs that this is going to involve? This is a big question. One of the positive points about Japan's situation is that their debt is mostly owned owed to Japanese people. So they don't have an issue of having to worry about what the rest of the world thinks. They also have huge foreign holdings. So I think they can deal with this. And I think, you know, one of the things the government may have to do is to have something like a one-off tax, a one-off wealth tax, whereby they can raise the money that they're going to need, which is going to be very substantial funds. I also think that the way that they've handled it so far suggests they're going to need to think very hard about what would happen if they had this kind of earthquake in Tokyo and Osaka and the manufacturing belt. And then going to need to start thinking about stockpiling food, stockpiling resources all around the populated areas so that if anything of this magnitude happened there, they could deal with it without the kinds of problems that they seem to be running into now. And I think that will cost them a lot of money. They're also going to think, need to think very carefully about the safety issues at things like nuclear reactors, but also other places. They don't seem to have done a very good job of thinking about all the possible contingencies that they could run into. And they need to think very hard about this. All of this is going to cost money. They have it. So I have no doubt that they're going to be able to deal with this problem. So the costs involved not just recovering from this event, but preparing for similar events that could take place later. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm curious, um, compared to other developed countries, how heavy is the tax burden on companies and individuals in Japan? Well, they have very high tax rates, but the taxes don't raise that much money. And so... 
I think there is scope for more taxation. They've been terrified to do that. Last time they tried to raise the consumption tax in, in 1997, it had a big effect on the economy. Uh, they, one of the big debates they've been had is the extent to which they should do that at the current time. So they're going to need to think about doing that. But the thing is, they don't have a choice here. They have to rebuild. They have to deal with this issue. They have to worry about making sure that if there was a massive earthquake in Tokyo, which is quite likely to happen, it may now be several decades away, but it could happen any time. They need to be prepared for it, and that just takes a huge amount of resources. Now, in the United States, we often uh, are bemoaning the, the problems we have in thinking ahead. Uh, of thinking just a couple of years ahead seems to be difficult at times. Uh, in Japan, is it similar, or are they better at thinking farther ahead, or worse, or what? I think they used to be much better. I'm not so sure now that they are so good. I think these political problems, some of the paralysis that they've had, has prevented them from really thinking through what they would need in a major catastrophe. It seems as though it's, it's taking longer than one would expect. I know that we in the United States didn't do a great job in Katrina, uh, which was much, much less severe than what, what they've had. But you know, they, they know that earthquakes are going to hit them. They've had them for hundreds of years. This is not something that's new or unsurprising. And what do you see as the main obstacles there to, um, to, to spending more to do that kind of preparation? Is, is the political system able to handle it? Is the public opposed to long-term investment? I think it's the political system. There's just a paralysis which makes it difficult for them to do things in a determined way, in the way that they used to, and that this is a big problem for them. Now, in the United States, we're often talking about how important the consumer is to the economy. And I've seen some stories suggesting that, well, uh, first of all, Japan is suffering a terrible economic blow here. But one of the, one of the sort of, sort of ongoing effects could be a, a tightening up by consumers and, uh, of their spending. Is consumer spending as important to their economy as it is in the United States? It's important. It's not quite as important, I believe, as here, but uh, it's important. It's important in most economies, and uh, it's important there. Now, I think one of the problems is Japan has been in this lethargic state since the bubble burst 20 years ago. And what they, they need is some kind of event that will shake them out of it. And it may well be that this kind of event, tragic though it is with the terrible loss of life, may actually in the long run benefit their economy because they have to now go out and do many things to rebuild. This is potentially going to energize the economy and might pull them out of it. And this is pretty speculative, but I am curious. They seem to be uh, fairly dependent on nuclear power in Japan. Uh, if there is a, 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 a resistance to nuclear power as a result of this, a, a lashing back, uh, what can they use as an alternative? Well, the alternative is the usual carbon-based fuels, and this is the problem. So it's going to be coal and oil 
and gas are the are the main alternatives. They can do alternative energy too, but you know that's very expensive. And they don't have many of those resources in no, Japan itself. Is no, that right? this, they they don't have that, and so this is going to affect the global markets in the long run. And that's what I want to get to next. If we if if you look at other countries in the region or elsewhere in the world, what countries are are the most interconnected with Japan, who are most likely to suffer in some way? Uh, if, if Japan's economy is badly shaken? So that's an interesting question. And I, I think they're a surplus country by and large. So they, they run a surplus. Um, I think in terms of direct trade links, this is not going to have much of an effect on that. Most of the manufacturing and the, the kinds of things we consume in, in the US or in Europe are made in uh, Osaka and Nagoya, th that whole belt down there, and that hasn't been so affected. So I don't think that that direct trade effects will be that important. I think there may well be financial effects, though, because they're going to need to run down some of their overseas assets. So the trillion dollars of, of foreign exchange reserves, much of which is in treasuries, is going to have to be liquidated and repatriated. And I think that could well affect our economy more than the direct trade linkages. Long-term interest rates may go up as a result, and this could have a significant effect. And the U.S. economy is not in the greatest shape either. If interest rates were to go up here, that, I assume, would slow the recovery. So particularly long-term interest rates, which I think are the ones that are likely to be affected, that's obviously going to raise mortgage costs, affect the housing market, and cause all the kinds of problems that we talked about last time when we discussed things. Now, at the same time, uh, to try to put this delicately, there may be some winners in this. I assume there are, I saw this morning a story that mentioned uh, uh, construction firm stocks were going up in Japan. And, and I, I assume there will be certain beneficiaries of, of this, both domestically and abroad. Who would they likely be? Well, I think it's construction, the, 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 the makers of construction materials, steel, cement, concrete, all those kinds of things. There's going to be huge demand for now, the Bank of Japan has, has made some efforts, has pumped some money into the system. Uh, how do you see those? Do you think they'll be effective? Will they need to do more? I, I think these are, these are mainly um, attempts to boost morale. I don't think they, they will have much real effect on the economy. And are there other moves they should have taken, in your view? No, I think they're doing the right kinds of things. And, and what about international agencies or, uh, you know, the, the IMF or the World Bank? Is there any role for for these big international organizations here? No, I don't think so. Japan is a rich country. They have the capacity to deal with this. As I said, they have large overseas holdings and they can pay for all of this in the long run. They may have to have some more taxes to balance out the tax load, but basically they should be able to deal with it. Now, uh, many uh, investors these days have international mutual funds and that sort of thing. People in America and Europe are, are investing internationally. What, what kind of effect do you see over the next few months or year on those uh, Japanese stocks, the market in general, that are so big in these portfolios? Well, it's obviously today the market was down about 6% in Japan, so that's a big effect on, on those holdings. and. Uh, 
you know, in, in the long run, I think they'll make it up, as I said. So uh, I, I think one has to take a long-term view of this. Clearly, they're going to have problems. But in the long run, I think they, they've ab absorbed many of these kinds of catastrophes before. The 1923 earthquake, the Second World War, all of these things are, are part of their resilience. And the Japanese respond very well to these kinds of national challenges. Now, you mentioned interest rates perhaps going up around the world as a result. Inflation as well? I think that the effects on inflation will be mixed. As I say, I think the commodities that they're going to be in high demand will go up. So steel, those kinds of things that are used in construction. Uh, I think uh, oil is an, is an interesting one. And a lot depends on how things play out over the next few days in these nuclear power stations. If they manage to keep the situation under control, the radiation leaks are, are manageable, then everything will be fine. They'll continue with, with the nuclear power. If we see a major accident, like Three Mile Island, or uh, hopefully not, but anything like Chernobyl with, a, with an explosion, uh, a nuclear kind of explosion, then you know, things are going to be dramatically different, because I think many countries will have big reservations about nuclear power as a result. And one of the things we often see with, with nuclear uh, radiation leaks is that the, the emotional impact is very high, uh, often higher than is really warranted by the, by the dangers involved. And uh, there are, there's some talk now that there could be these, these steam ventings going on for weeks or months. And I wonder if that's likely to affect uh, people's willingness to buy Japanese products, things that are made anywhere in Japan. Yes, I think... You know, in Japan, because of the history in the Second World War with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and the terrible tolls from radiation that occurred there, that this is, is an extraordinarily difficult issue for the Japanese. I am sure that they will be on top of making sure that if there are any controlled releases of radiation and so on, that these won't contaminate goods or anything and that uh, you know, certainly we shouldn't worry about Japanese goods having radioactive. And, and last question, I I'm just wonder if you could um, put all of these uh, events in Japan in sort of a worldwide context. We have lots of problems in the world. We have uh, debt problems in the U.S. and in Europe. And uh, uh, I'm just wondering, where does this rank? Is this, is this really something that's going to tip the balance badly? Uh, is it something that's thrown into the big mix of worldwide problems is not creating that much of a difference? Or, or what do you see? I think a lot depends on how things play out going forward. So as I say, if the nuclear situation gets worse, then it could have a big impact. This is one of a series of earthquakes we've seen in the Pacific in the last few months. So we had the one in Christchurch. There were some in China which were fairly big. We've seen this whole pattern of aftershocks. If they have any more big ones, then that's going to be a big problem. I think if things stop where they are now, this is a serious problem. It will have some effects, but it's not a catastrophic problem. It's, it's a manageable one with probably several hundred billion, maybe somewhat more, losses. Well, we'll hope that's the case, or it's, or it's less than that. Thank you very much, Professor.
Thank you. Now, both of you have studied low probability, high impact events. And I just want to start by asking generally, you know, we've had several days of uh, reading coverage of this, and a lot is sure to unfold in the next few days and weeks. But what strikes you right away out of the, out of the coverage here? Well, I think there are two things that strike me right away. One is the magnitude and intensity of this event. It was the seventh largest earthquake in recorded history, and it had an enormous impact on the country on many different levels that we can certainly talk about. The second part is how well prepared Japan was for this in the sense that they had building codes and other things in place. And yet, even with that, because of the magnitude of the disaster and its interactions with other aspects like tsunamis and a nuclear power plant explosion, the devastation is enormous, and the consequences are yet to come. Well, I, I totally agree with that. I think if, if you had to put a different countries on a scale from zero to 10, 10 being the most prepared, Japan may be at eight or nine. I would argue that the U.S. would be like six or seven, less so, um, not even talking Europe in some places. So uh, you can be the most prepared for these type of events. I think what we're seeing now is really a perfect storm, a combination of quake, flood, nuclear, at the same time. So it's very, very overwhelming, and a death toll that continues to rise as, as, uh, as time passes. Just, just amazing. When you compare it, for example, to the earthquake in Haiti, one of the things that just an amateur, anybody looking at the news can see, is the different construction of the buildings. And they, they, they have very strong building codes in Japan. Does anyone have codes that match theirs? No, I think Japan, is, of any country with respect to earthquakes, there are other disasters, but with respect to earthquakes, they have the strongest codes, and for very good reason. They have had more earthquakes, certainly of any developed country, uh, than any other place in the world. And they know the dangers, and they've experienced it over time. Well, the other country that compares to Japan in some extent is Chile. Uh, we had a major earthquake in Chile last year as well. Uh, not as rich as Japan, obviously, so, uh, but the fact that Chile have had eight or nine earthquakes over the past 10 years made Chile uh, one of the good students in, the, in that team as well, just because you have to prepare for what could happen tomorrow morning. Now, when you look at, at what's, what we know so far, do you see any areas where the preparation uh, on, on a realistic scale was not good enough? Well, it's an interesting question on what good enough is. And I think to some extent, it was good enough for almost any type of earthquake except the kind of earthquake that we had of this intensity. And it raises a very interesting question that we have to raise as a society or as a global society, at what level do we put money in to the very, very low probability events? It is certainly the case that there are homes and other structures that could have been built better. And part of it may have to do with the income level of the people and where it was located but certainly the intensity makes this problematic as to whether or not they could have done much better. Uh, yeah, well, I agree with, with, with Howard on that one. I think it's too early to start blaming anyone here. Uh, we're still in the crisis mode. Uh, so I think let, let's, let's wait for a few days and weeks, and then we'll start seeing you know, what could have been done better. I think we are still in the, uh, uh, in the crisis mode here. Uh, let, me, let me just sort of break it down and look at some general 
questions that people have to deal with in planning for this kind of event. And first is the low probability. How do you assess what a probability is of this or, or even the more uh, routine kinds of events? Do you go simply on past history or do you adjust that somehow? Well, I, th I think in the case of earthquakes, there's a fair amount of evidence with respect to essentially how earthquake prone an area is. And there were things on the news today, in fact, talking about the fact that the San Andreas Fault may be one, a part of a square of, of earthquakes that could occur. And so there's a prediction that has some seismologists have made that maybe they are more likely to have an earthquake uh, given this than they otherwise would. But the intensity and the magnitude, and I'm not a seismologist, Nairon and I are really do a lot of work in the analysis of risk, wouldn't be in a position to really say exactly what they would have been able to predict. But this is one that is outside of the box from the normal prediction. Well, and the other thing is, I think it's fair to say it's, it's hard to predict earthquake in the following sense. Uh, we know that could happen. The question is when, and the when could be a very large, long time horizon. Uh, 50 years or 100 years is a long time for seismology, not for you and me as, as individual, but for earthquake it is. And the second point is that even though you come up with a probability, let's say one in 10,000, what does that mean? How do you translate that into action? Uh, it's very hard. So the perception of the risk is even more important to me in that case than uh, the uh, numerical number you, you get at the end. Now, we would assume that nothing we're doing is changing the risk of earthquakes, that that's somehow embedded in tectonic plates and has nothing change, to do with us. Uh, but there are, yes, there is climate change and there are other things where, where you sort of wonder, uh, uh, they talk about 100-year floods and this sort of thing, they seem to come more often. So how do you adjust for those kinds of events where, where the pace and the history may be more volatile? Well, you know, it's, it's very, very interesting. There was a period of time, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, where earthquake prediction was on the agenda. Uh, and there was a fair amount of money that was actually given by the National Science Foundation and other research institutions for uh, work in this area. I think they're less, uh, uh, con con there's a feeling that there's less likely to be able to do that today. Uh, and I think the best they can do are in certain areas, like in Turkey, they actually have had studies that because of the earthquake in 1999, they were actually able to make a prediction that another earthquake would occur within 20 or 30 years. Now, whether the seismologists are still as confident about that now than they were, let's say, eight or 10 years ago is an interesting question. Uh, but it's very, very rare that they'd be able to do that. As Nazarwan was saying, the notion of when it's going to happen and where it will happen is really something that I think has uh, been puzzling and a challenge for the scientists profession. Yeah. And, and on, on the top of that, a few things happen, just to your, back to your questions, are they happening more often? I think there are a few things happening. One is we just gained another billion people on planet Earth over the past 10 years. The next 10 years will be another billion, so you're talking seven, eight billion people on planet Earth. As the media coverage is much better, now you can uh, receive video live from what's happening in Japan 24-7. So you, you see more of that in your living room as well, so you feel the emotion much more. And last point, that more people are living in high-risk areas. Um, the state of Florida here in the U.S. is a good example. Uh, population increased by 600% over the past 60 years. Uh, some of the work uh, Howard and I uh, have done in a book called At War with the Weather, when we looked at these issues very, very carefully. So even before talking about climate change, take a look at 
how many people are living in high-risk areas? Are they protected or not? They are not. Uh, the economic and social consequences may be very, very high. So all over the world, people tend to live in coastal areas. The most dense populations are found where there's water and yep. transportation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, that gets to the next question, which is cost. Now, there's obviously human cost, but there's financial cost as well in these events. And, and that certainly is a moving target. So anyone who's trying to uh, ultimately balance risk and cost, how do they assess the cost? Well, this is one of the real challenges in this whole area. There's a direct cost, and that's obviously what we're hearing about now, lives lost, and, that is going to ch and that's been changing hourly in terms of how many people have been lost, and the damage to buildings. But there's a large cost associated with business interruption. There's a large cost associated with a lot of the interdependencies. For example, you, you take Toyota as a company. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen to them in Japan itself and they didn't have a lot of damage to their factory uh, or plant because they were far from the earthquake but they rely on supplies so there's a whole supply chain problem and the transportation and infrastructure which we still don't know how serious it is can cause real real challenges so I think we have to really look at these things in a very long run perspective we can't just say right now that the cost is going to be X it's going to be a matter of time before we really fully understand that it. and it's these indirect costs that are going to be very important. Yeah, and, and then you can start thinking at a pretty strategic level within your corporation, for instance. Well, maybe there are low probability events, but how ready are we if something like that happened tomorrow? Um, if I'm a Google today, I'm looking at whether an earthquake could happen in, in the Silicon Valley tomorrow and ask myself, are we ready for that? Um, do we have insurance? Do we have financial protection for that? Uh, that earthquake in Japan may be one of the most costly earthquakes since uh, since uh, California earthquake in North 1994. So you're really talking about a major, major event here. There's one other point is just to add, and, and, and it's one that we still don't have a very good handle on, and that's the whole nuclear uh, possibility of radiation. I mean, that could cost could be enormous if there really is a core meltdown or if there are where things happen not only to this area but to a much wider area. And uh, a question came up actually in my risk class today when we were talking briefly about this uh, as to what's going to happen to nuclear power and the future of nuclear power as a result of this and the whole perception of nuclear power, how safe it is, even though the Japanese have done everything in many ways to make it uh, th their, these plants uh, quite safe uh, and compared to Chernobyl, it's a lot safer, but even so, the perception of nuclear power may change as a result of this particular disaster. Yeah, and one of the things that, that, that seems clear is that, is that nuclear power has been kind of clawing its way back to respectability right. Uh, and, and even environmentalists are saying, well, maybe it's better than uh, some of the fossil fuel alternatives. Now, uh, all of these calculations, are, I guess, are up in the air. Uh, well, I, I think it's more than that. People are seriously contemplating the alternative now. Um, a good example is here in Pennsylvania, uh, Three Mile Island in 1979. I mean, nothing really happened there in terms of, uh, it's not like you had millions of victims. Uh, it was pretty benign, but the perception of it changed the uh, nuclear industry, at least in this country, forever. No uh, new uh, nuclear reactor built after Chernobyl. And that was like 30 years ago. So uh, now you see, I was on the phone before coming with France, uh, companies like Areva and others who are selling these nuclear powers to China, Brazil, and others. It's a booming business. Uh, are, are thinking about the future of their business model, no question.
Uh, I don't know if this is, is a little too far out of your bailiwick, but I am curious that the plants we're talking about in Japan are quite old, 30 or 40, 40 years old, I believe. And there are other countries, I believe uh, France has been building more plants more recently. Do you know whether the current technology uh, is much safer than the than the forty year old technology? Do you know the French technology. Well, <laughs> the French version. Uh, no, well, it's true for nuclear. It's true for everything. The technology is getting better and better and better. So uh, that said, given the uh, magnitude of this earthquake, I'm not sure that uh, a brand new nuclear reactor will do much better than one that was built. 10 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, that's if it's the case in Japan. Uh, so the quality of the construction will be better. But you're talking about devastating event here. That say nuclear uh, facilities tend to be built to resist to 10,000 year return earthquake, which is bigger than the one we're seeing in, in Japan. The one comment that has been made over the last couple of days is that the plants in Japan are far better designed than Chernobyl and that there is really a hope and as we're speaking right now they're trying what someone in, in the news said a Hail Mary effort <laughs> using football analogy to have salt water in the plants to try to prevent the core meltdown they said that is but they also indicated that even that there are still uh, the design of that plant may be able to continue a great deal of the radiation where Chernobyl was not able to. So in that context, this is definitely a safer plant. Now, whether or not uh, they could have done much better or what that would have been is really uh, something that, as Erwan said, it may very well be. The technology is not feasible to do a lot better. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to hear what the experts say about redesigning another plant that would be able to deal with earthquake prone. The one other comment I just want to briefly mention, and uh, and it would be it'll be interesting to hear about the decision. Apparently, this plant is on an earthquake fault, and there is a question with respect to whether or not there was a, a, a recognition of what could possibly have happened because of the earthquake fault. My guess is there must have been, but on the other hand, it's gonna, there is some discussion now is did they put the plant in the right place? Yes, one of the, that, that gets to my next question, which is the sort of embedded risks that may not be very visible. And it's one thing to say, well, we do sort of know the frequency of earthquakes, and we can, you know, we can we can calculate the odds. But in this case, one of the things that seems to have gone wrong is that the diesel generators that served as backup were installed at a level that was below what would be flooded if the sea walls were breached. And of course, now that seems like an obvious error. But I would just wonder, when you're doing risk assessment, how much do you have to worry that there are things like that, minor details, or apparently minor, that could that could be just be overlooked, that could have devastating effects? You worry about it all the time. Any risk assessor makes a comment that they'll do the best they can with the knowledge that they have. The best example in the case of an earthquake was Kobe, because Kobe received an enormous amount of damage in the earthquake in the 1990s. Uh, it wasn't that the buildings weren't well designed. They just didn't know until after the earthquake that it couldn't withstand that particular type of shock, and they were unaware. And that happened exactly the same in California with respect to Northridge. There were new there were designs they thought were very, very safe, and they just weren't. Well, not, not on the te technology. One point I would like to add on the nuclear, I mean, positive thing, if I may say, is that 
uh, it's not just Japan. The entire international community is looking at what's happening here, especially the International Atomic Energy Agency, who is the international body looking at these issues. It happens that the current director is a Japanese person, uh, Mr. Omano. I think that will help a lot in terms of interacting uh, between the Japanese authorities and the international community. Um, so that's a positive note on, on the international Now, approach. let's say that this, this event is a big wake-up call to people, that they really need to be doing better risk assessment and well, thinking about these low-probability, high-impact events. Let's suppose uh, one were uh, the CEO of a, of a major corporation and realized my firm has really not been doing this. How do you start? What's the, how does the process begin? Well, for, first of all, I don't think that's a wake up. I mean, we have had many wake up calls over uh -huh. the past few few days uh, uh, and few years. Sorry, just like it it keep arriving like every three months now. Uh, earthquake in New Zealand a few day a few weeks ago. Uh, major flooding in in uh, Australia. Uh, earthquake in Haiti and Chile. It, it keeps coming. So I think if you're a CEO, I hope you have been starting thinking about this issue. I think what we've seen so far is that more and more board of directors putting these issues on the agenda uh, much more than they used to just three or four or five years ago. So we see that radical, radical change. Um, how we start? Well, that's what we're doing here at the Wharton Risk Center. We've been doing that for 28 years now. Uh, so it's more than just explaining that quickly. There are, there are ways you can handle these issues and do it properly. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Meaning we know how you to have do to it. go outside and find experts who know how to do this, or is it something that can be built inside the company? Well, it's typically it's both. Uh, you, you're still driving what you want to do. You have limited resources you want to allocate to these issues, but you need expertise uh, from outside to help you to do that, and we know how to do it. The question is, are you ready to start? Okay. And and I wanna, yeah, uh, if I could pose one challenge for all CEOs, and one that we have been thinking a great deal about and at the risk center, in terms of our own research and interaction with corporations, how can the corporations think long-term? How do they really can design strategies for not only dealing with the risk, but making these long-term strategies? Because there is a tendency to forget, and there is a tendency for f feeling that we're okay after a period of time. And I'm not saying that corporations uh, forget completely, but the real challenge is that there is a need to really have things in place that give the firms stability. So we raise that as a challenge. And, and, and I imagine there's an issue of incentives as well. If you go mm -hmm. back and look at the financial crisis of a few years ago, one of the things that, that surprised many people is, well, why would people running these big fancy firms take risks that could destroy their firms? And one of the answers that's, uh, that's come out of the history of this is, well, many of them were able to make so much money uh, so quickly by gambling so big that the future didn't matter all that much. And it, it seems to me that there's always a tension between immediate results and long-term planning, uh, especially where it comes to expending money. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering what you see as the major obstacles to better disaster planning in corporations and in government. Well, you hit it right on the head. I mean, it's exactly that challenge of giving short-term incentives uh, in order to be able to convince firms that they should do long-term planning. And you need both. You can't, if you think that you can do it just with a long-term plan without the incentives, it's not going to work for just the reasons you pointed out. And that's, I think, what we have to work towards, is giving something back the next year, but at the same time recognizing it's a multi-year process. Well, going back to our point a minute ago, I think if we can extend the time horizon 
upon which you make your decision. Going back to your question about the financial crisis, if your salary or bonus would have been uh, given to you not after a year, in which case that was very good, but after five years, depending on how your portfolio of clients uh, would have been behaving over five years, I'm pretty sure you will have made very different decisions uh, rather than trying to game the system as uh, we've seen happen. The same thing for earthquakes, the same thing for flood, hurricanes. Can you extend the time horizon? And if we do so, uh, I think you can make that a win-win situation for many people. So there is a way to do it. Let me pose one little experiment that people can think about. If you told an individual that there's a one in a hundred chance of an earthquake or a flood occurring next year, and they have to take protection, uh, our guess is from at least previous experimental work, you would not get that many takers. Say one in a hundred, it's below my threshold. Level of concern, I'm not gonna worry. But if you told that person, there's a greater than one in five chance of having more, at least one, if not more than one earthquake or flood in the next 25 years, uh, they may think differently. But those two probabilities are absolutely identical. And all that we've done, as Erwan was suggesting and that we've been really thinking about is stretch that time horizon. Here you're just stretching a time horizon to give precisely the same figure, but putting it in a different dimension. And one in five is large enough for people to want to think a little bit about. One in a hundred is too small. Uh -huh. Now, the last question is that, uh, I think that when we think in terms of disasters, we tend to, our minds immediately go to those who are obviously most immediately affected, the people and businesses who are, who are in those areas. And here we are uh, in Pennsylvania, half a world away, uh, and yet this could affect us in some ways. Uh, there are certainly immediate effects of trade that, 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 that could impact us somehow. Uh, there are questions of whether uh, I've seen some speculation that Japanese consumers may tighten up just as a general reaction to a, a, a sense of stress uh, and buy fewer products. And all, so that many people and many companies that aren't sort of in the immediate impact area are affected somehow. And how does, say, a business person who's trying to look at how it ripple effects from halfway around the world uh, will affect him. How does he start in evaluating that? Because that covers, you could be affected by anything anywhere. Yeah. Well, yes, the same question you were posing earlier in terms of what is the impact going to be on me, on my corporation? That's question number one. Uh, and then what does it mean to have that uh, uh, an earthquake in Japan? Where do we rely on sources of supply? Is our business going to be affected? And there are a whole series of questions in our interdependent, interconnected world that any business would ask. And I think that's what's happening right today. I think you're finding that uh, around the world. Everyone is asking a question along those lines. And then the second point, and the obvious one, is our compassion, our feeling that we are all in this together. And I think the feeling of really having to somehow wind up helping for reasons that are not just economic, but are for other social reasons is quite real. And we know the concern that everyone has about Japan today. And, and when, you, when you look at these kinds of interactions and how interconnected the world is today, I assume that planning for catastrophe is something that you don't just order up a plan and put it on the shelf to act on it someday, but you have to review it constantly as these conditions change. Well, it's more than that. I think that's a fair point. It's more than that in the sense that because we are living that small planet now, uh, for me to prepare means that I need to prepare internally, make sure my employees are ready, but also to prepare externally, 
with my suppliers, with other regulatory systems outside of my country. So the, the dashboard is really planet Earth, and that's a radical change. That's the flip side of globalization. Risks are becoming much more global today, and you need to prepare on that very global scale, and that's new. Well, we have an unusual opportunity today, which is that you have experienced a tsunami. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little about your experiences in the uh, Indian Ocean in 2004. Actually, I was a first-hand witness of the December 26, 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. I was in Thailand, invited by a former doctoral student of mine to teach a small course, finish up a couple of papers, and I invited her to Phuket Island to experience her first scuba diving experience. We felt the earthquake in the morning, but didn't think much about it. After that, it's just pure luck, just pure luck. I have no other words. Lucky that I selected a very quiet beach in order this, for this to be a good, better experience for my students. And maybe due to its orientation or slope, the beach wasn't hit that much. I was lucky because I selected a Swiss facility uh, to provide the maximum security. And these guys were so un-Swiss that they picked me up 30 minutes late. Had they been on time, like most Swiss people are supposed to be, uh, I would have been on the ocean. And then we saw the water suddenly disappear. One minute, uh, the shoreline was right there. Two minutes later, it was like a quarter mile back and somebody in the group knew about it. I didn't. Somebody in the group told us, run. And so he gave they us- They understood that's a they sign of a tsunami. Somebody knew about uh -huh. it. And so he gave us two very useful minutes of advance notice. We believed him since we felt the earthquake in the morning and we started running. And that's why the first and the second wave uh, just died at our feet. And we were out of danger for the third one, the big one that made all of the damage. When we came back, we, we just couldn't believe it. Our car was like two miles inland, totally destroyed. The beach was somewhat spared. I didn't see anyone dead at that time. It was only afterwards that we learned about the casualties. 280,000 deaths, still the largest uh, natural disaster in terms of the number of deaths. Pure luck. I have no other words for that. The story may have been very different. <laughs> it's uh, absolutely chilling. And the, the news of the last week has just been absolutely chilling out of it, Japan. It was. Your, your field is, is insurance. And we're just curious. It's very early to assess the situation in Japan. But is there any way of saying how large these events are for insurers compared to other kinds of events? There are hurricanes, big fires, that sort of thing. Well, we don't know yet for this one, but obviously it's going to be a major, major disaster insurance-wise. Katrina cost about $89 billion, and that is the largest recorded uh, natural event ever for the insurance world. Otherwise, hurricanes range, big ones, between 10 and $50 billion. This is likely to be exceeded with this event, but how much exactly, we don't know yet. Now, with events on that scale, are, do the insurers typically have the assets to cover those kinds of losses, or are these outside the realm of what they've planned for? 
typically insurance companies will build reserves. Insurance is a process to spread the cost of claims in, in time and in space. In time, obviously there will be good years, bad years. This is a bad year and it's only March. So hopefully insurance companies are going to spend, they will have to spend most of the reserves that they have built over the years. We can only hope that the hurricane season in the US will be not too bad this year because money is going to come out of the same pool, the international reinsurance pool. Now, was this a bad year before uh, the earthquake in Japan, or um, is that, that's what's made it bad? This is what made uh -huh. it bad, because obviously this is going to increase $100 billion. So the insurance industry as a whole is going to suffer. The reinsurance industry will be hit in a major way. I want to get to the reinsurance industry, but first I'm, I'm curious about sort of the, the actuarial process in planning for these kinds of events. I think most people have a rough understanding of how insurance companies calculate the odds of car accidents and uh, even, even deaths for life insurance policies. They have a lot of data uh, to draw from and, and you get statistically st significant numbers fairly easily. But these major events are so rare. So how does that process work? It is obviously a lot tougher. A lot tougher, all the more so because of climate change. What actuaries do is take the data from the past and extrapolate it in the future. Here we can't do that. So we have to work with fewer data points. We have models, we have models, but we need to be more creative in building these models, using climate models to try to forecast what is going to happen. But this is, this is much, much more difficult. Life insurance is so predictable. Number of houses that, going, that are going to burn down in the US, we know that. This is much, much harder work for us. Now, the element of climate change, I, I can uh, imagine how that might affect the tsunami. It might affect sea levels and, and that sort of thing. Not the earthquakes themselves, though, no. does it? Or does no, it? No, it doesn't. Uh -huh. mm. But it does, it does affect uh, uh, certainly the level of flooding that you get. It seems to be affecting the severity of hurricanes. Is that right? It will impact hurricanes, the level of flooding, certainly. What is also changing is you have more assets uh, next to beaches than you used to. Actually, it seems that the 60s and 70s were very quiet years in terms of hurricanes. But that's when people in Europe and the US became rich and started being building houses around the beach. So that's why hurricanes are more expensive these days because assets along the path of a hurricane are so much more expensive these days. And I think we've seen, I remember many maps of that during, uh, the, uh, during Katrina, during that period, and most people around the world are living in coastal areas. Is that right? Huge portions of the population and the infrastructure. And it building. is so, especially in Asian countries. Um, their li livelihood depends on that. For us, it's like beach houses, but for them, they need to be close to the beach. Now, the other element uh, is, is uh, you have to assess the risk of an event occurring, but then the cost. And I assume that that is a moving target all the time. Is that right? It is a moving target altogether. All it, it is really moving all the time. Uh, we know about 
the cost of the assets that are in the likely path of a hurricane. We know the percentage of people who buy earthquake insurance or hurricane insurance. We cannot really predict the exact path of a hurricane. Any 10-mile difference can make an enormous difference in terms of insurance losses. Now, I'm curious about uh, the incentives within the insurance industry for making these judgments on the, uh, uh, on, on the most logical and sensible basis. Uh, are there incentives not to do that? I mean, there must be profit drives that say, look, um, we've got to sell insurance in these coastal regions because that's where people are. We'll have to take our chances. The hurricane hits 10 miles up the coast and not here. Do you think there's a certain, a certain business pressure that undermines uh, uh, good planning in this area? Well, insurance is about taking chances. Insurance companies are in the business of selling policies, not in the business of denying policies. So they have to take what's good and what's bad. They are trying to balance their portfolio. If they have too many uh, houses along a likely path of a hurricane, they are going to try to get rid of some of them through uh, reinsurance contracts. They are going to enter into risk sharing agreements with other insurance companies. Uh, we try to have the risks as independent as possible so that one event will not affect too many of our risks. So in a way we try to swap Japanese houses versus California houses hoping that the disaster won't affect so the two of them. it's a kind of diversification like it any is, risk it involved. Is, it is diversification try not to have too many policies concentrated in a given village or area. I see. All right. And um, you've mentioned the reinsurance industry. It's a word many of us have heard and I think many of us don't quite get. This is sort of insurance for insurance. Is that, can you explain what reinsurance is? Indeed. It is insurance but one step further. An event like this mostly is going to be paid for by Japanese insurance companies, of course, but they are going to suffer, really, and they may not have the ability to pay for it. Fortunately, insurance works, reinsurance works, and I'm sure that these re Japanese companies are linked to European, American reinsurance companies through hundreds of contracts. So essentially, pretty much everybody in the affluent world is going to pay for some of it. And yes, we are going to pay a little bit more, even American citizens on their homeowners policy next year, because we are going to pay for a little bit of that, helping Japanese insurance companies, helping the Japanese economy at the moment where they badly need it. These are huge contracts, hundreds of them, and they span, they span the whole world. Uh, I'm sure that hundreds, if not thousands, of insurance companies are going to end up paying for this. Now, when I think back uh, of a few years ago to the financial crisis, and well, one of the issues we talked about a lot here at Knowledge at Wharton during that period and wrote about was that there had been a sense that many products were being used to uh, make it easier to transfer risk so that, so that individuals and institutions and investors who were most willing and most able to bear risk 
uh, were able to get it uh, through the kinds of modern contracts and derivatives of the things that were available. And then when the crisis struck, there's a sort of some of a sense that, well, maybe this is a, a process that allows contagion to spread more rapidly. Is there any sense that, that, that the insurance industry is uh, spreading danger further than it should through these kinds of things, or, or is this a, a, a reasonable balancing out? I'm not too concerned. Uh -huh. I think it's a good thing right. that all of us are going to pay for, mm -hmm. for these uh, Japanese companies, even though they're pretty large, they probably can't pay for all of this. So that's why it's good that the, we are spreading the risk in space and, and over time. We are going to pay for this this year, but also in the future. Uh, a risk is that insurance capacity is going to be reduced in the sense that it may become much more difficult to pay for the next one if it occurs soon. So we really hope that the next one doesn't come anytime soon to build up new reserves. Now, when we think of, um, uh, we, we have sort of the, your basic insurance company that we're familiar with, the companies we deal with on our, on our individual policies. And uh, then we have the reinsurers that we've just been discussing. I take it that the reinsurers operate pretty much on a global basis. Do the, do the ordinary insurance companies do that as well? Uh, some of them do. Uh, some insurance companies have their own uh, reinsurance network, but it isn't as global, and obviously they don't have as much expertise as the professional reinsurance companies in Switzerland, Germany, England do. So, yes, insurance companies do it a little bit, but probably not for hurricane risks. They will exchange risks for life insurance, like if they have a life insured for $50 million, they are not going to keep it all. They are going to co-insure it with other insurance companies, or they are going to keep the first $5 million and reinsure it. But typically, they would do that for the common type of policies that we know. Uh, one of the sort of the poster children of, of the financial crisis was AIG. Uh, but many of AIG's problems, its main problems, came from a trading unit in, in London, I believe, that really didn't have that much to do with the insurance operation. Do you have any sense that, um, that insurers themselves that, that in, uh, are, are taking risks that they shouldn't be taking, or does it seem to you like a, a fairly well-run industry in general? That's a very broad generalization, but I'm wondering. AIG's problems did not come from its insurance operations. Uh, problems, are we taking too many risks? Maybe because of these pricing problems. Uh, maybe we are tackling very difficult problems. Maybe we cannot model perfectly climate change, longevity risks. Uh, maybe our models are not good enough uh, to model essentially contagion. Uh, actual health science probability theory is very advanced when you deal with independent risks. When risks are dependent, it's a totally different game. Calculations are much more difficult. And what brought the financial crisis is a lack of appraisal of correlations between risks. This is a potential problem in, ins in insurance. 
No, that's an archduel. These are dominoes falling in ways that people have a hard time predicting, is essentially what we're talking about. We yeah. can't really predict everything. We cannot predict change, essentially. And I, I assume, as in, as in engineering, you know, where they, most accidents, they say, are a result of a combination of events, that, that you didn't anticipate that combination coming just like that. Is that a similar problem in insurance? Uh, not in the case of tsunamis, hurricanes. Yes. This is just... Uh, a random event that can happen in a in a bunch of places. Uh, yeah. What is important is where it happens. The Indian tsunami was not that expensive because it did not happen in in Japan or in the U.S. Uh, we can't predict everything. Now, in the United States, insurance is generally regulated at the state level, which uh, some critics are, think uh, makes it too balkanized and broken up and uh, contradictory and too many gaps left. Do, do you uh, have a view on that? Do you agree with that or disagree with that? And, and what about globally? How is insurance regulated? Well, in the U.S., it's regulated at the state level. It certainly makes it more expensive because if you plan to develop an, a new policy, you've got to get it approved by 51 different regulators. So this certainly makes launching a new product uh, more expensive. What about the oversight of risks that, are, that may be building up within the system? Is, is there anyone watching that? There, there's a new agency formed by the, Frank, uh, the, the Dodd-Frank bill. Is that going to take care of that kind of problem? Uh, regulators in the U.S., insurance commissioners are supposed to have they have oversight over insurance companies, so they are doing their best to try to control the risk, make sure that companies remain solvent, keep track of companies that are in trouble, and they try to intervene if they find out that some company is in trouble. Again, moving target, again, not so easy to find out. And, and what is the potential for what we call systemic risks, like we saw with some of the big banks? Can the same thing exist in the insurance industry? Possibly uh, longevity risk. If all of a sudden people live longer, uh, of course we do build in some increases in mortality in our models, but maybe some new test, some new medical improvement may change the whole game. The impact of genetic testing, that's a possible issue in the future. Assume there is a $100 test that will tell us pretty much when and how we are going to die, that could totally disrupt the insurance industry. Only some people will buy insurance, some people won't. Uh, unforeseen events could and, occur. And who is likely to be looking out, sort of planning ahead for those kinds of events? I mean, aside from the industry itself, are there any regulators on a national or global level that look for those kind of systemic risks? Well, on a global level, I would say yes, and I would say the reinsurance companies, because they are so strong, they are so powerful that they have people dealing with these risks. In a prior life, I was a real-life actuary. I was working with Swiss Re uh, out of Belgium. Uh, they had three people, three people working on Belgian risks only. I know that Swiss Re, they hired a geneticist just to study the pot potential impact of uh, genetic advances. So reinsurance companies, they have very advanced data. And I assume that this data is, uh, is also affecting their pricing and they're, they're competing with one another 
looking for appropriate and hopefully lower pricing that they, they are competing with one another uh -huh. uh, however the reinsurance market is highly concentrated you don't have the same level of competition that you have on the regular insurance market and also there is a capacity problem especially after an event like this one um, these large companies will pretty much dictate prices it's kind of a cycle sometimes customers are have more to say about reinsurance prices in the future it's kind of likely that these large reinsurance companies will pretty much dictate prices in the future and how many big reinsurers are there i mean the big portion of the market is gobbled up by how many um, maybe 10 uh -huh. reinsurance companies mostly uh, situated in switzerland in germany lords of london uh, bermuda lots of offshore uh, reinsurance companies so the bottom line here is you believe that the uh, insurance industry can can absorb the costs of these events in Japan, but that all of us are going to pay a little bit more because of it. I think they can absorb it. They have in the past uh, for similar events. Uh, they, if there is a, another event like this one in a couple of months, then I don't know. Maybe in three to four years when they will have time to reconstitute reserves through increased premiums, reinsurance premiums all over the world maybe they'll be able to pay for it. Well, it gives us just another reason to hope for a calm hurricane season. On yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.